2: Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. Dr. Alice Collette's monograph, Lives of Early Buddhist Nuns, Biographies as History, published by Oxford University Press in 2016, delves into the lives of six of the best-known nuns from the period of early Buddhism, Dhamma Kema, Kisagotami, Patatra, Badakundalakesa, and Upalavana, all of whom were direct disciples of the historical Buddha. Colette does the thankless task of sorting through the biographical information scattered throughout the canonical and commentarial literature to present a richly textured account of these six extraordinary women's lives. She further analyzes the differences between the various biographical accounts to glean historical information about the position of women and changing gender relations in the early centuries of Buddhism in India. One of the main contributions of her monograph is the finding that women were treated more favorably in the Pali Canon than is commonly presented. She also gains insight into an impressive number of other themes ranging from notions of beauty and bodily adornment, to family, class, and marriage, to name just a few. This book is sure to be of value to a wide audience, especially those interested in women in Buddhism, early Buddhism, and early Indian society. Alice, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So I'd like to begin by asking you about your professional background and how you became interested in the topic of your book.
1: So um, I studied for my PhD at Cardiff University between 2000 and 2004, and my PhD wasn't on women in Buddhism, but it's during that time that I first became interested in the topic of women in Buddhism. So my PhD was on Buddhism, but not specifically on women. But one of the texts that I studied during the course of my PhD was a Sanskrit an Indian Sanskrit text that did include ten stories about women and uh, they, they seem like interesting stories to me you know women were the main protagonists in the stories and the women attained to high levels of religious insight and religious experience and I had been reading about women in Buddhism um, just for general interest as I say it wasn't the main topic of my PhD But what I noticed when I started reading about women in Buddhism, and this is a debate actually, a scholarly debate that had been going on for a hundred years or so. The the first article published on women in Buddhism uh, was published in 1893. So, what I noticed during uh, when I was looking into this is that not only were these 10 stories, these 10 Sanskrit stories that I found, not only were they not included in any of the debate on women in Buddhism, but actually there were quite a lot of texts and quite a lot of sources from early Indian Buddhism that hadn't yet been included in this debate, this scholarly debate. So then following my PhD, I decided to investigate this further and my first article that i published in uh, 2006 was called buddhism and gender reframing and refocusing the debate and in that article i survey the modern scholarly debate on women in buddhism and raise an attempt to answer questions as to why it is that the whole of the textual record wasn't really taken into consideration or hadn't been taken into consideration when assessing uh, the place of women in early buddhism attitudes to women in early buddhism etc and one thing that i found was that in the 70s 80s and 90s uh when s- second wave feminism and feminist scholars started um studying and publishing on women in buddhism what the feminist scholars it, 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 um done was drawn out the misogyny and the negative portrayals of women in the text. Now, I I do want to say that um, before I say anything more about second wave feminists, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for everything that second wave feminism has done. And I think that the, in the modern Western world, in the modern Western world and other parts of the world, women wouldn't experience the levels of equality that they do experience now. So I think second wave feminism had a hugely positive impact on the world. And I don't want it to sound like I'm in any way um I'm criticizing them, but it just so happens that um when these women started studying Buddhist texts, natural for them in that particular historical situation to be drawing out the misogyny and <clears throat> negative uh, portrayals of women in, in early Buddhist texts. So uh, what I found and, and what I've been doing uh, during my scholarly scholarly career, since I first started publishing on women in Buddhism in 2006, I've been focusing on what's positive in the textual record in relation to women in Buddhism. And actually what I found is there's a huge amount that's positive. And uh, what I said actually in my 2013 edited volume is and this is my belief I, I'm not I'm not so surprised about negative attitudes to women uh, portrayed um depicted in early Indian uh, Buddhist literature because this is an ancient civilization with traditional values so all the negativity doesn't surprise me but all the positivity does all the positivity to me is absolutely fascinating to be from a historical milieu the historical milieu that it comes from, it's so interesting to see that we have so many names of Buddhist nuns, so many names of Buddhist lay women, and so many stories of them, and even apparently poems authored by them. So the majority of my um, scholarly career to date, with regard to publishing and research, has, as I say, uh, been focused on attempting to draw much more attention to these Um, positive portrayals and accounts of women in early Indian Buddhist literature and the monograph is um, one of my main attempts to do that the monograph we'll be talking about now
2: What are the sources uh, for the non spiographical information that you use within the book?
1: So the sources range potentially over a 1000 year period so Um. It is debatable and often debated in Buddhist studies scholarship the extent to which any of the extant sources we have do actually go back to the time of the historical Buddha. Uh, My view is that some of them do potentially date back to the time of the Buddha. Uh, All the texts that we have now would have been transmitted orally from the time of the Buddha, and then at some point they were written down. Uh, so, in both the oral transmission process and the manuscript transmission process, um, things change. You know, uh, stories change, biographies change, for instance, as we're talking about now. You know, even the teachings might change somewhat. So, things change, of course, but I think some of what we have certainly we can say would go back to the time of the buddha so some of these sources that i'm talking about uh that i'll be talking about today that i talk about in the book i think do potentially go back to the time of the historical buddha um particularly some of the poems of the nuns um which is a text called the terigata and uh other There are other episodes and other accounts of the nuns that I'll talk about from the earliest strata of the Buddhist canon. And some of that does potentially go back to the time of the Buddha. And actually, the six nuns that I'll be talking about, who I focus on in the book, are considered to be direct disciples of the historical Buddha. Um, uh, So that's the earliest sources, the early canon. And then also the biographies that I focus on in the book. the first biographical accounts come in a text called the Apadana, which is considered generally considered to be post-Ashokan. So Ashoka was an important Buddhist king uh, from the Maoran period. So these texts date to around about the 2nd or 1st century BCE. Then we come to the commentaries, which is commentarial literature which provide exegesis on the Buddhist canon, so um, attempt to provide some explanation for the canon. Um, And these commentaries date from around about the 4th to the 6th century CE. So those are the main sources that I use in the monograph.
2: Are there any other problems or uh, inconsistencies with the text that pose a, a challenge to the researcher?
1: Many, yes, many. (laughs) Um, So, I guess the main thing to say with regard to my book, focus on in the book, is that although we have the names of these nuns and stories associated with them and poems apparently authored by them, we cannot be definitely sure that any of these women were actually historical women lived. Um, So what we have in these range of texts, and uh, uh, I'll say a bit more about that. this when we come on to um, talking about the individual nuns. Uh, So in one example actually we have uh, in a Pali source a biography attributed to one nun and then in a Sanskrit source the biography is attributed to a different nun. So we don't know if these names that we have and these biographical accounts we have definitely relate to historical women Um, but potentially they do
2: let's just imagine for a moment that some of these early Buddhist nuns uh, maybe some of them didn't actually exist or maybe some of them have been mythologized over the centuries can we still draw historical lessons from their stories
1: Um, I wouldn't say that they were mythologized actually I would say that um, how would I put it I would say it's more like these are likely to be examples of how the lives of Buddhist nuns were at that time, even though we can't be specific enough to say certainly a woman such as Dharmadinna lived certainly there was a disciple of the historical buddha called dharmadina so we can't say that certainly but i think that the struggles that these women face their characters their qualities their attributes certainly generally i think we can say that this does these things do give us some indication of the lives of women uh in early indian buddhism during the time of the buddha
2: So the format of your book presents an interesting opportunity for us to do something a little bit different than what we normally do on the podcast. I'd like to invite you to walk us through each one of these nuns' biographies one by one and to talk about what they can reveal to us. Um, I believe the first nun that you discuss in your book is Damadina. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you be able to tell us about her, please?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So as I've been saying then there are there are different versions of um these accounts of the nuns and, and the the texts um aren't always consistent. So this is true with the case of Dharma We do have different versions of her and actually the character of her changes um in the different versions of her and actually of all the nuns that I talk about. The, the changes with regard to the character of Dharmadina are potentially the most, the most pronounced of all of them. Some of the others do change quite significantly as well, but there are very, very pronounced changes with regard to the character of Dharmadina and how she's portrayed, particularly um, uh, if we compare an account of her in the earliest strata of the canonical literature with the commentarial accounts of her. So um, in the earliest strata of the literature, there isn't a biography of her. The first biography is in uh, this later canonical text that I mentioned already, the Apadana. But in the earliest strata of the canonical literature, there is an account of her which portrays her as a brilliant teacher with a profound comprehension of the teachings. And is an account of her in dialogue with a lay follower called Bisarka, um, who poses questions to her and um she answers his questions uh, fully, completely, comprehensively. So in this early account of her, that she's just presented as this um Buddhist nun who, who teaches male lay followers and, and is a very accomplished teacher. There's no account of any of her personal life or of her having had a husband prior to the time that she became a nun. Then we come on to the later canonical text, the Apadana, where we find her first biography. Now in this biography, there's just one brief mention of her husband, her having had a husband before she became a nun. So if we go then to the uh, later commentaries, here we find her husband figures very centrally in her biographies. And here we see a very significant shift in the character of Dharmadina as portrayed in these texts. So here she becomes very subservient to her husband, and her husband is now Visaka, this same lay follower who is posing questions to her in the earlier discourse, the earlier debate. So in the commentary, she changes from being this brilliant teacher with the profound with a profound comprehension of the teachings, teaching to someone subservient to her husband who who follows him uh, into the order. So according to the commentarial account, Visaka, her husband, is the one who meets the Buddha first and becomes a follower of the Buddha. And Dharmadina just simply decides to uh, follow him and to do that as well. So she changes essentially, you could say, from something of a leader to a follower. Also, one account even um, relates specifically how he takes her to the nun's dwelling um, in order to become a nun and goes into some detail and says such things as he bathes her, he adorns her with all her ornaments and takes her in a golden chariot Uh, through the city to the nuns' dwellings. So here, as I say, we see a a real lack of agency with regard to Dharmadina herself. Uh, She doesn't do any of these things herself. Her husband does all these things for her and takes her. Um, And then uh, finally, with regard to this um, loss of agency we see with Dharmadina in the commentaries, in one of the commentaries, her character as this brilliant teaching with a profound comprehension of the, of the teachings is entirely undermined in one commentary which says that the buddha in his omniscience essentially put the words in her mouth and she was able to give that teaching because the buddha through his omniscience was really working through her and so they're the buddha's words really rather than her own so that's um how the different versions of the biography change. Um, so, um, the bio- biographical accounts are in part one of the monograph, and then in part two, um, there are discursive chapters where I discuss the themes and issues uh, that arise uh, when reading the biographical account. So, I, I focus on in the discursive chapter on Dharma I focus on female teachers and examples of female teachers in early Buddhist literature so again uh, what I draw out in the discursive section um, are really layers uh, of the the text which um, suggest that prior to the time that the Buddhist community uh, became more formalized and more institutional there were examples of um respected and a uh, very able and competent female teachers such as Dharma um but what we have when the community um becomes more formalized becomes more institutional, we have the idea of a monk advisor to nuns, so uh when the community becomes more formalized uh Monks and nuns lived separately in separate dwellings, probably a lot of them the nunneries for the nuns were inside city walls in order to protect the nuns uh, and then the monks' uh, monasteries were, were outside. so the monks and the nuns lived separately uh, in this more formalized institutional setting and then the nuns would uh, go to the monks every fortnight and request a monk advisor to the nun which would the nuns, which would be a monk who comes and um, gives the nuns a teaching uh, that that time, at that time. So why then, if you, if we have brilliant teachers like dharmadina who are part of the community of nuns, why would they really need a monk advisor? And as I say, I think we, what this shows us is really that um, although I've talked about an early strata and later strata of the canon, I think that the Pali Canon is. Um, we can discern really layers of it. So um, the idea of the monk advisor to nuns is something that comes later on in the tradition when the tradition becomes more established and settles down into formal institutional structures. Also um what I talk about in this section is inscriptions because the inscriptions first of all the inscriptions tell us of other female teachers that we don't hear about in the text so uh, more named female buddhist teachers uh nuns usually they are um from the epigraphic record and also what the inscriptions um Tell us as well is of close male female teacher disciple relationships. So, again, in the extant texts as we have them now, the the community is understood as being segregated along gender lines, as I've said. Uh, And we don't have any examples of close male female teacher disciple relations. But in the inscriptions, we have women saying, uh, This is a donation of nun so and so, who is a disciple of monk. So and so. So, we have quite a lot of examples of male female teacher disciple relationships, which again suggests that the early Buddhist community evolved into this more institutional form which um, functioned being segregated along gender lines.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Next up, we have the nun Kema, uh, and this was a particularly interesting chapter in your book, I thought. Um, you talk about how one of the central themes in Kema's biography is her obsession with her own beauty, and how her story reveals that in ancient India, it wasn't the naked body that was seen as beautiful, but the adorned body. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so... um So, Kayma's story, her biography, is a story of a woman obsessed with her own beauty. Um, So, unlike uh, Namadina, who I've just been talking about, um, there are some varieties in the biographies of her, but her biography does remain fairly static, actually, um, throughout the different versions and different retellings of it. So, the story is that she's married to King Bimbisara, who is himself a follower of the Buddha, and she is, as I say, obsessed by her own beauty. Now, um, knowing something of the Buddha and his teachings, Kama shies away from meeting the Buddha, uh, thinking that he will not be very happy with uh, her obsession with the way that she looks and her beauty. Uh, but her husband, Bimbisara, decides to uh, plot to try and get her to meet the Buddha as he thinks if this happens, this will have a positive impact on Kama. So uh, as is recorded in other parts of the Pali Canon, Bimbisara has donated a park to the Buddha and his followers. So what Bimbisara does is he gets uh, singers to sing songs of the beauty of the park to his wife. And then she decides that she would like to visit the park and see the park for herself. So she goes there and eventually, whilst in the park, does meet the Buddha. And as I say, even in these biographies where the story arc is generally the same there are minor details and how Kamar comes to meet the Buddha in the different versions does vary slightly not in ways that are particularly significant but I'm just pointing it out to show you that even when a biography remains quite static throughout the tradition we do see minor differences in the different versions. in all versions anyway she does eventually meet the Buddha Now, the Buddha, again, with his omniscience, knowing and seeing and understanding Kema's nature and her obsession with her beauty, decides to give her a teaching that he thinks will help her. So he creates an apparition of a beautiful woman fanning him. And again, there's another slight difference in terms of Kema's response to this beautiful woman that she sees fanning the Buddha. Uh, in some responses, the way that in some versions, the way that she responds is, is seeming to say, oh, well, maybe the Buddha isn't as bad as I thought he was kind of thing. But then in other versions, she really just um, goes into a, a kind of mental state of self-depreciation where she compares herself to this stunning beauty, this apparition the Buddha has created, and thinks, oh, I'm not even a 16th part as beautiful as this beautiful woman that stands before me and then uh the teaching is that the buddha then makes this apparition decay in front of Kama's eyes so the apparition goes from being this stunningly beautiful woman to an old decayed ugly wrinkled woman with broken teeth and white hair and seeing this, Kema, it has the desired effect on Kama, and Kama has a profound religious experience and realizes the truth of impermanence, which is a key teaching, certainly in early Buddhism. And so she decides to become a follower of the Buddha. And so that's the basis of the biography. So in the discursive chapter on this, I focus on female beauty and what it means in this context. A significant amount has been written about the female body in early Indian Buddhism and women's bodies as sites of desire, particularly from a male perspective that um, monks uh, would do well to uh, avoid women if they can um, so that they are not um, caught up in their sexual desire for the women. (laughs) So what I attempt to do in this chapter is to um shift our understanding slightly of what's being said about the female body here uh, and draw out that in each case that the female body in in the majority of cases where uh, women are talked about as being desired by men um, it's the adorned and ornamented female body that is put forward as the problem as the site of the desire so it's not any woman's body it's certainly not something like the old and decrepit women bo- women's body that, that, that the apparition turned into but it's an adorned and ornamented uh, female body so uh what i draw out in this chapter is that in this ancient indian milieu uh ornamentation was considered to be uh, an aspect, an important, and, and even defining—you could say—defining aspect of beauty, but importantly, not just female beauty. So men adorned themselves as well. Uh, men ornamented themselves as well. Men wore makeup as well in this particular setting. So I talk about a few examples demonstrating that men ornamented themselves in the same way that women did. Uh, One of the ones that I think might come across as slightly humorous to modern Westerners is a poem uh, of a Buddhist monk who's lamenting uh, how far the noble Buddhist community has fallen since the time of the Buddha and how lax it has become. And he says that the monks are even adorning themselves like courtesans. So given the stereotype that we have of a Buddhist monk, in the west that might sound odd it might sound odd to imagine that a monk might be adorning himself in in this way but if we remember that the monks might come from wealthy sectors of ancient indian society where they were brought up to uh, think that adorning themselves and making themselves up would be just a, a regular part of their lives as it were then this maybe isn't so unusual as it might sound to us Hence, then, uh, my and as I say, my argument here is really to seek this subtle shift in the discourse on women's bodies and female beauty, and to say that my, in my reading of the text, it isn't women's bodies per se that's the problem; it's the ornamented and adorned body that is considered to be the site of sexual desire and the ornamented and adorned body can be male or female. So actually what the texts are saying is that the problem is desire. The problem is sexual desire. And that is actually a completely doctrinally endorsed point Um, because early Buddhism talks a lot about um, moving away from desire.
2: Next, we have the nun, Kisagotami. What can she tell us about female wanderers in early Buddhism?
1: Kisagotami's biography focuses on grief and focuses on her life prior to ordination, uh, as the others do. Uh, But what I draw out in the discursive chapter is um, elements of uh, accounts of her, which suggest her to have been a very committed um, female ascetic, uh, female renouncer. So I'll just say a little bit about her biography uh, before I get on to that. So her biography focuses on grief and particularly the loss of a child. Um, and again, uh, as with Camus' biography, this one remains fairly static. However, um, Kisagotomi's biography does get confused with the biography of the next nun that we're going to talk about, which is Patatara. So both of these biographies focus on grief. With me, it's the loss of a child uh, that causes her grief. With Patatra, it's a loss of m- multiple family members uh, that creates her grief. Um, so as I said at the beginning, sometimes it seems like the stories of the biographies of these different nuns can get intertwined and confused with one another. And this is the clearest example. So there are examples of that in the Pali literature. But the clearest example of this is that Patatra's story in the Pali is said to be Kisagotami's story in a, in an important Sanskrit text. So the same biography is said to be in one source of the story of one nun and in another source, the story of another nun. So this is an example of what I was talking about at the beginning of how uh, convoluted these uh, texts can get in in regard to uh, recounting apparently historical accounts of women. So the story of Kisagotami, uh, the teaching that the Buddha gives her and this main part of the story arc that stays the same in all versions, uh, Following the death of her child and her profound grief, uh, she meets the Buddha and the Buddha asks her to bring him a white mustard seed from any house in the village uh, which has not experienced death. So she goes knocking from door to door, and at every door, every person she meets says, Yes, we've experienced death in this house. Yes, there's been death here. Yes, we've had a loss. Yes, we've had a death. And what she learns from this, as I say, is a truth of impermanence that. Death is inevitable. So again, this is her. This profound, this teaching of the Buddha has the desired effect, and Kisa becomes a follower of the Buddha. Now, one thing that's said about her, and what I talk about in the discursive chapter on her, is that she's said to become a wearer of coarse robes. So all of these nuns that I'm talking about, and the other nuns from early Indian Buddhism, uh, would have been typically. Uh, They shave off their hair and they uh, wear robes. And and it's said sometimes that the robes are are made of scraps of material which might be rubbed in the mud and roughly sewn together. And and for the nuns to dress like this, uh, similarly to the monks, um, this is an indication of their renunciation. So renunciation of family ties and social responsibilities, renunciation of the world in pursuit of their quest to attain nirvana or awakening um so Kisagotomi to me being said to be someone who's aware of coarse robes indicates that she's a pretty, particularly committed to her ascetic practices um, so therefore, in the discursive section, uh, I discuss uh, Nuns and the social identity of these shaven headed rag robe wearing women. So, such women would have at first, when Buddhism began uh, and people first started seeing these women with their shaven heads, with their robes, these women would have looked quite odd to people, probably. Um, There are many strictures on The norms that prescribe women's lives in ancient India, a woman would normally, uh, as a child and a young woman, would live with her family and be under the guardianship of her father. And then uh, then she would marry and, and typically go and live with her husband's family. So women would always be under the guardianship of one man or another. Uh, so, these nuns then, um, who have rejected such a life and, uh, you know, rejected all of this ornamentation and, and ideas of beauty and making themselves up, etc., women who have rejected all of this, might well have appeared really quite odd uh, in this particular uh, milieu. So, in this chapter, then, I compare this social identity of nuns with. Um, and the social status of nuns with another group of women who I would call non-normative women. So other women living outside of these expected roles, domestic roles for women, and that is prostitutes. So it might seem at first strange to be pairing uh, Buddhist nuns alongside prostitutes. But as I say, these are the two sorts of groups of women um, who don't live according to prescribed and expected domestic and family uh, roles. Um, And so what I attempt to show in the chapter is that throughout this period of uh, early India, both some groups of nuns, particularly the high status, sorry, some groups of prostitutes, particularly the high status prostitutes and the nuns at another time, each group at some point does um, enjoy Uh, positive social status and what seems to be an established and a fixed social identity. At some point during this period, both high-status prostitutes do and nuns do, but neither group do in the whole of the period uh, that I'm talking about that I focus on in, in the book. And the reason that each group do at each time that they do, I'm arguing, is because at those times, they are considered to be under the guardianship of a man or men, and when they are considered to be under the guardianship of a man or men, uh, then their social status is more secure. So, what we find in the early texts is that high-status prostitutes um, were considered to be gannakas, They're called, which means which can mean something like belonging to the group. Um, so, they were considered to be um, under the guardianship of the king, actually, uh, in some cases. And according to some of the early texts, there were even, uh, there was governance of uh, prostitutes. So there are um, texts uh, apparently on statecraft, which say there would be a superintendent who would be governing the women and uh, some of them would have to pay taxes, etc., etc. So at that time, it seems that Um, Some of the high class prostitutes certainly um, were respected and had a particular social status. Now, when we look at nuns uh, and the beginning of the Buddhist community, as I say, I I don't think that their social identity was really understood uh, very fully. Now, what we find in the earliest texts and what I think is an example of this are um, incidents of sexual assault of nuns. Now, where we find these is in the texts on monastic codes of conduct where rules are put in place that nuns shouldn't do certain things because, actually, it seems that, according to the origin stories of why the rules are made, it seems that if the nuns did do these things, they might put themselves in jet danger, which might result in them um, being sexually assaulted. So, for example, there's a rule that nuns shouldn't travel alone. Uh, they shouldn't stay alone, alone uh, overnight. They shouldn't even lag behind a group that they're walking with too much, because even that could potentially be too dangerous for them. So, whilst the nuns are, um, the social identity of nuns is not fully comprehended it seems that they were in danger of being subjected to sexual assault. So we find uh, discussion of this in the earliest strata of the canonical literature, but by the time we get to the latest strata of canonical literature uh, and, and the commentaries, we don't find so much discussion of that. And I would say that's because... Uh, The Buddhist tradition has become much more established at this point and people understand now that the community around them understands the social identity of nuns uh, and respects them and understands that they're celibate, but also understands that they are under the guardianship of the monks. And there are a set of eight rules uh, which nuns who are ordained must adhere to. Now, we know that these eight rules were an interpolation. They weren't there in the earliest strata of the text. They were added at some point. But what these eight rules specifically do is cast the nuns under the guardianship of the monks. So the monk advisor to nuns, who I've talked about already, um, one of the rules um, is concerned with the monk advisor to nuns. So in these rules, we see the the nuns being under the guardianship of the monks. And and what I argue in, in this chapter is that the reason that these were necessary was to actually protect nuns to show they're under the guardianship of the monks so that it wouldn't be so dangerous for them.
2: Now we come to the nun Patatra. Who was she and what can we learn from her?
1: So I've already mentioned Patatra in relation to Uh So as I said, this is a, another biographical account um, which focuses around grief. But actually, the most interesting part of it, from my point of view, and the part of it that I talk about in the discursive chapter, is that in this instance, we have a young woman who goes against her parents' choice of husband for her and essentially runs off with an unsuitable man. So, again, I think this is something we might not expect from uh, a woman uh, in an ancient Indian Buddhist community. Uh, with very traditional values. Um, So the different versions don't always cast Patatra's chosen husband in the same light, but in each case, um, they do indicate that he was a man of low social status and therefore not suitable for her. So sometimes, for example, he's described as a servant in her father's house. So following the time that she decides to run off with him, uh, she has two ch- children, That so she decides she wants to return home to see her family. Uh, and when she does this, a storm erupts, and uh, as she um, walks on in the storm going home, her husband is killed by a snake. Then, attempting to return home alone, one of her ch- children is carried off by a bird of prey and the other one swept away by a flooded river. Continuing on then to her parents' home, she learns that her family home has also been destroyed in the storm, and her parents and brother are all now also dead. So according to some of the later accounts, as a consequence of this intense grief that she feels, she loses her mind and begins to wander around in a naked, grief-stricken state. Uh, So the earlier account of her in the Apadana doesn't say that, it just has Uh, a few maybe a a verse or two uh, about uh, her response to this grief that she feels but in all accounts anyway she eventually meets the buddha who speaks to her with words that deeply resonate with her and again exactly what he says is different in the different accounts but he speaks to her in words that resonate with her every time Uh, and again she becomes a follower of the buddha so, as I mentioned, in the most interesting part, as far as I'm concerned, of Patatra's biography um, is that she rejects her parents' choice of husband and runs off with an unsuitable man. So, this again, I think, highlights female agency, uh, which I talked about earlier. So, women acting from their own will and, uh, and intention, basically. So, and Patatra is not the only one of the nuns that I talk about in the book um, who. Chooses her own husband. So the nun that I'll come on to next, uh, Badakundala Kesa, also chooses her own husband. Um, but there are differences between how Patatra goes about it and how Badakundala Kesa uh, goes about it, or, or 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 what happens actually. So Patatra in order to uh, marry her her cho- her choice of husband, has to uh, leave the family home and reject her parents completely. Uh, Banda case, on the other hand she persuades her parents to um, agree to her again very unsuitable choice. Um, so although both women um, have agency that we might not expect in this particular historical context they both demonstrate the same sort of agency in that they decide who they want to marry and they go ahead and marry that person. In Patatra's case it's a marriage that seems to be always against her parents' wishes. But in Badalakundala Keisa's case, she gets her parents to agree to it, even though in Badalakundala Kesa's case, it's a thief that she decides to marry. So certainly someone who would be considered unsuitable for her. Um, So that's generally what I talk about in this discursive section. And in this section, I do talk quite comparatively. So the chapter is about marriage, family, caste and class, uh, all things that come up in Patatra's biography. And I discuss these in a range of literature from the period and particularly contrasting Buddhist and Brahminical literature. And what I conclude is that in Brahminical literature, uh, yes, it is true. We can see some examples of some female agency uh, at work in relation to family dynamics and in relation to marriage. But actually, we have to look quite deeply into the biomedical literature to find that, whereas in Buddhist literature, it's very much on the surface. So um, we can see women with agency and saying no to marriage. And we see that a lot, actually, and and perhaps Obviously, if you think about it, because in order to become Buddhist nuns, the majority of them would have had to say no to marriage at some point.
2: You previously spoke about the next nun, and she can teach us a lot about female conversion uh, in, in early Buddhism. Um, who was she, and what was her story?
1: Okay, so the next nun is Badakundala Kesa. So, as you say, I've just uh, said something about her story, her biography and the one uh, most prominent part of her biography is that um, she does initially become a practitioner of jainism before she converts to buddhism Uh, so jainism do you want me to say a little bit about what jainism is
2: yeah that'd be really helpful yeah
1: okay so jainism is another religion that arose around the same time as buddhism in india uh, but it's much less well known than buddhism outside of india because unlike buddhism it hasn't been uh taken up by other cultures and it isn't practiced all around the world as buddhism is so jainism has much more than Buddhism; just stayed in india so as i say then vada kundalakesa um First of all, becomes a giant practitioner and then converts to Buddhism. So the key part of her biography is this conversion. And that's what I talk about in the discursive chapter on her. As I say, then uh, she married a thief and uh, this didn't end well for her. So uh, after her marriage to the thief, um, he decides to attempt to steal her jewels so he invites her to accompany him on a trip to a mountain, but she realizes what his intentions are. Uh, and instead of being the victim here, uh, what ends up happening is that the Kundalakasia pushes him off the cliff to his death. So after this, then she realizes she can't return home, so she decides to become a Jain practitioner. So, exactly how Her conversion happens, differs, in different versions of the biography. So in the version of the biography, the earliest one, in the Apadana, this late canonical text, there's just really one very ambiguous verse which tells us about her conversion experience. Now, what the verse suggests is that she is meditating in a cremation ground. So a cremation ground will be where... Um, People take their deceased family members and they'll be burned on an open funeral pyre. So in early Buddhism, uh, meditating in a cremation ground can be advocated um, because, again, it can help one with the realization of impermanence. So it seems then what is suggested by this very, very ambiguous Pali verse is that Badakundra Kesa as this giant practitioner, Um, was uh, meditating, was sitting in the cremation ground and simply had some sort of profound religious experience at that moment which made her decide she wanted to start to practice Buddhism. And it really is very unclear exactly what it was that happened in the Apadana account apart from it does seem to be some sort of internal realisation that she had, that there was some limitation to Jainism um, that she realised and therefore became dissatisfied with the doctrines and teaching of Jainism. Now, uh, in the commentary, how her conversion happens is uh, recounted very, very differently um so again in the commentaries the 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 initial story arc remains the same so she sees the thief she becomes enamored with him she persuades persuade her parents that uh, he's the one for her and and her her her, her father uh uh organizes his release from prison so they can so they can marry uh and then he tries to steal from her Uh, She throws him off the cliff and and becomes a giant practitioner. And she's said to be a very skilled giant practitioner who understands the practices very well and understands the doctrine and the teachings very well. And she also becomes a very skilled debater. I think even one of the stories in the commentary says that um, she becomes a very skilled debater. And when men know that she's around and visiting their village, uh, they run away because they're scared. They don't want to debate with her because she's such a skilled debater. So um, what we have is a, 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 an account of her whereby she goes from village to village looking for people to debate with and she'll place, as so she gets to each village, she'll place a stick in a heap of sand somewhere at the village boundary or border. So people know that she's there and if anybody wants to debate with her, they are to um, push the stick over. So <clears throat> eventually uh, Sariputta who's one of the chief male disciples of the Buddha comes along and enters into debate with her and it's through this debate with Sariputta that she is converted to Buddhism and then again becomes a follower of the Buddha. So as I say, very, very different accounts of how our conversion happens in the the, the, the canonical uh, biography, the the commentaries. And I think one of the reasons for this is because the Apadana was composed during the time that Buddhism was flourishing in North India. So um, we don't have, I mean, in the in Canon the over we don't have as many conversion stories or uh, we have barely no other conversion stories of, of females from Jainism converting in this way. Um, and we don't have that many of men either. I think part of the reason for that is that when we start to get these biographies in the in the in the later canon, during this time Buddhism is flourishing in North India to the extent that conversion isn't that much of an issue. And what we find instead uh, in these biographical accounts is a sort of assumption that if one hears the teaching of a Buddha, one's naturally just going to become a devotee. So conversion doesn't really seem to factor in as much as one might imagine it would um, in these biographies. So then if we go move forward to the time of the commentaries, different time, different place. So the commentaries potentially written in South India uh, or maybe Sri Lanka, uh, 4th to the 6th uh, century CE, so centuries later. So at a time, and if we are talking about India, at a time where it seems Buddhism wasn't very popular in South India. So during this period um, of religious history of South India at that time, we have more evidence of Jainism than Buddhism. So this suggests that then, if Buddhism is the minority religion, there would be more of an interest again in conversion and in conversion uh, via debate as we see happening in Baddha cases biography. Um, so these different accounts of how conversion takes place and what happens may well be to do with the different historical contexts uh, within which these um, stories were created. And one last thing that I'd like to say about uh, Badakundala Kesa is that Uh, she is linked to South India in a way that none of the other nuns that I talk about are, because there is um, or was, sorry, a a text written in the Tamil language, which is one of the languages of South India. Um, So a version of her biography written in the Tamil language. As I say, uh, we don't have any for any of the other nuns uh, written in uh, a version written in the Tamil language. Uh, And that text is sadly lost, but um chunks of it are still extant in other Tamil literature.
2: Last but not least, we have the sixth nun, Upalavanna, And you speak about female characteristics vis-a-vis men and what we can learn about that from her biography.
1: So yeah, Upalavanna, a very interesting character. And uh, as I said in the book, I think that she... She seems to have captured the imagination of Buddhist authors throughout the centuries much more so than any of the other nuns. And and I I don't know the reason for that, actually. Um, But what we find in the Pali literature and other contemporaneous literature and in other traditions, we we find multiple uh, accounts and episodes and and depictions and stories of of Pahlavanna. So... um, in uh, part one of the monograph, where in the chapter on Uplavanna, uh, with the other nuns, the, 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 the biographies are stable enough that I've been able to just tell essentially one account of the biography. But the, this uh, section on Upalavanna is divided into five sections in which I tell four different biographies, all of which appear in the Pali sources. And then the fifth section is on lots of other different accounts of her as well. Yeah. So, there's, so there's more on her uh, than any of the other nuns. So perhaps the best known of um, her biographies is a story in which she's married to a king and there are other wives of the king who all become jealous of her and plot against her. So as you mentioned, uh, what I talk about in the discursive part of this chapter uh, is female characteristics. So in all accounts of Uplavana, interestingly, whether she is depicted as a devoted disciple of the Buddha, a loving wife, a caring mother, a captivating beauty, etc., she's invariably presented in a very positive light as a good and virtuous person. So this contrasts quite sharply with these jealous wives who are the other main characters And as I say, one probably most well-known biography of her. So in this chapter on female characteristics I contrast and uh, and actually I I try to uh, redress what I see as an imbalance with regard to um, the extent to which male and female characteristics as we see uh, depicted in the early literature have been discussed and talked about in modern scholarship so um, going back again to the second wave feminists um, who are writing in the 70s, 80s and 90s, what we find with regard to this type of scholarly literature is women like the jealous and manipulative women that are de- depicted in Oplevanna's in biography as these wives that are jealous of her. Uh, women like this with these characteristics have been given quite a lot of, received quite a lot of attention in scholarly literature on women in early Indian Buddhism. And um, an unfortunate consequence of that has been now that the texts also do um, talk about very negative characteristics of men as well. But these actually, when I was writing the book, I couldn't find any scholarship that really focused on these negative characteristics of men that we find being talked about in these early texts. So an unfortunate consequence of all this then is that um, when we um, look at the uh, uh, this early Indian literature and think about what's it saying about men, what's it saying about women, what can happen is that what we think is, oh, what it says about men is they're devoted disciples, they're excellent teachers, but what it says about women is they're jealous, and manipulative. But we're not really comparing like with like, if that, if that is our view and if that is what we think. Um Because actually, both men and women are talked about as having both very positive and very negative characteristics in this body of literature, so both men and women are talked about as exemplary disciples, as skilled and excellent teachers we 've seen that already with Dharmadina, what I was talking about in the beginning. Um, and as virtuous and ethical and compassionate. And also, both men and women are talked about as having very negative characteristics. So you could say the worst of women and the worst of men. All of this is also depicted in the literature. But as I say, all that that has been... um the way that men are depicted negatively hasn't received that much attention. So for example, men can be depicted as obstinate and disrespectful, as mean, as greedy, as aggressive and as idiotic. Um, So what I hope uh, people get from reading that chapter is um, to think about that when we are um, comparing what these texts say about men and women, to make sure we're comparing like with like, so that we see both men and women portrayed positively, and both men and women portrayed negatively.
2: And Now, going through the, the six different nuns, they, they're very clearly very different uh, personalities. They have very different biographies. And as a result, we can learn a, a, a wide scope of things from their biographies about the, the milieu in which they existed. But if we step back and we look at these six nuns' biographies as a whole, what lessons do they provide to scholars about Buddhist history, practice and thought in general uh, in ancient Indian Buddhism?
1: So as I said at the the beginning, the the monograph is part of my overall um, kind of targets and objectives with regard to my contribution to research, which is to draw out these more positive um, portrayals of women in early Indian uh, Buddhist literature. so um also as i said at the beginning we can't definitely know that any of these women were actually historical figures who lived. Um and as i said again i think that what the what all this material does point us to is that um what we find here in what are recounted as the struggles of women and uh, their their achievements Generally speaking, I think we can understand that to be um, the sorts of lives that women would have lived within early Indian Buddhism. So um, for my book, I asked Martin Seeger to write an afterword. Now, Martin is a specialist in um, modern Thai Buddhism and does write about women in modern Thai Buddhism. And he's just um, written a book. Uh, on the same material that he um, and that he discusses in the afterword to my book, and this is on modern biographies of Thai Buddhist nuns. Um, so what he found, and what Artin and I fa- found very interesting, is that all the same struggles that we hear about um, with regard to early Buddhist nuns, all the same struggles and all their same achievements are replicated in these modern biographies of Thai Buddhist nuns, which again, as I say, really I think shows us the the potential that we have here in this early literature in that it does seem to be indicating aspects of women's lives during that period.
2: I'd like to ask you what projects you're currently working on and and what you have planned for the future.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So my current project, um, I'm working on another monograph and uh, in this one, I'm spreading out, not just focusing on text, but focusing on a range of interpretable data. Interpretable data. And not just focusing on women in Buddhism, but focusing more broadly on women in uh, ancient India, early historic in India. Uh, so this book, the working title is Women in Early Historic India, the Changing Political Landscape. So the innovation of this book is my attempt at periodization. So the book has um six chapters, and each chapter focuses on a different ruling empire or kingdom or dynasty, and in the book I attempt to assess the place of women in that particular empire or kingdom. So for example, there's a chapter on the, the Maran Empire, the one on the Indo Greeks, one on the Satavahanas, uh, a kingdom that ruled um uh, parts of North India, and as I say i look at I assess a range of data, so i 'm looking at the epigraphic record, archaeology um, numismatics, etc, uh, as well as text that's what i'm working on at the moment um uh yeah, as I say, again, not just on Buddhist women this time but but expanding out into uh, women more generally and women's lives more generally during this period.
2: You know, your book has been one of the bestsellers in Amazon's section for religious history for quite some time now. And I think it's clear why that is. You you take these six nuns' biographies as your starting points, And from there, you're able to glean so much historical information about such a wide range of topics that I think it can't help but appeal to a very wide audience. Um, so I'd like to thank you again for coming on the podcast today and taking the time to present these women's lives and the interesting context in which they lived. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other New Books and Buddhist Studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Forkuva.